Hi, everybody. This is Bob Bro. Welcome to the Best Old Time Radio Podcast. This week, we're doing an archive show. This was a Boomer Boulevard show that was first broadcast back on the 9th of April in 2018. Hope you enjoy it. It's half past eight exactly, Mr. Dillon. I better get it out of the safe now. All right, let's go. Let's go. Hey, everybody, come on in. Come on in out of the snow. That's right, the snow. I know it's April, but it's snowing in St. Louis. Not bad, just some flurries. This week it's supposed to get up to, what is it, 76 degrees, Chester? Yeah, later in the week, I think Thursday or so, 76. But it's snowing today. Winter is just trying to hang on this year, and already we've got tulips up, and the trees are budding, the pear trees are all in flower. It's looking very pretty, but tonight it is snowing. I guess it's not going to stick. Anyway, welcome. Come on in, take your galoshes off, hang your coats up. Chester's got some hot coffee back there and some hot cider. Yep, we got hot chocolate. Very good, Chester. We got some uh, cookies back there for you. Welcome, come on in, grab a seat. This is Bob Bro. Welcome to Boomer Boulevard, the old time radio show, where we play old time radio programs we actually remember from when we were kids. Why? Because we're baby boomers. These were the shows mostly from the 1950s. Some of them ended up on television, and we remember them from television, but many of them we remember listening to on the radio. And tonight's a good example. We have an episode of Escape. I remember Escape. I do. I remember Escape from the radio. We have an episode of The Halls of Ivy. I can't say I remember that from the time, the time period, but I do remember Ronald Coleman very well. And it was actually on TV for a short period of time. It was much better on the radio. Excellent show. And this is a fun episode tonight. And, of course, we all remember Gunsmoke from both the radio and television. We've got a good episode of Gunsmoke tonight. So we have a great lineup. Everything is ready to go, right, Chester? You've got all this. All, he's nodding. All the shows are lined up, ready to go. So all you need to do is come on in, take a seat, make yourselves comfortable, because we're going to get started in just a moment.
Okay, we're going to start things off tonight with an episode of Escape, which was really a great show. Interestingly enough, for some reason, this show never had a sponsor. Well, it came on late in, in the uh, history of radio drama. I know Leonard Malton in his book talks about when television started gaining prominence, uh, a lot of the sponsors started fleeing from radio. Now, the networks, fortunately, weren't going out of business because they ran the television studios, too. But they still had a lot of hours to fill on radio, both in day and night. So they had to create programming, and uh, sometimes they would sell spot ads. Sometimes they would just uh, sustain the shows on their own and, and just run public service announcements or do ads for their programming. Interestingly, the main sponsors, you know, the big companies that actually were identified with these shows like Lux and Johnson's Wax or... Chesterfield or Lucky Strike, they would actually control the content of some of the shows, many of the shows in the uh, 40s. But by the 50s, uh, that was lessening up. And so they had less and less control. And as a result, a lot of things could be done. Now, there wasn't as much money spent on the programming. That's true. But shows like Escape really flourished because they didn't have all of these constraints put on them by their sponsors. And as a result, Escape just was able to fly. They could pretty much do what they wanted, and they did a lot of great programs. They they would go and search for uh, short stories by famous authors. There was stories by people that, like F. Scott Fitzgerald and uh, Daphne du Maurier and, oh, just a whole host of others. So that was one of the reasons Escape was so good. Unfortunately, because it didn't have a sponsor, nobody was standing behind it, and they would just use it to plug in holes on the uh, schedule. So Escape almost never had the same night that it played over and over again, but instead it would be on uh, one night during the summer, and then maybe it'd be off the air for a few months, and then they'd plug it in when they canceled the show and, and that sort of thing. Anyway, this is a good one tonight. The name of this episode is The Man Who Stole the Bible. And it was originally broadcast on August 30th, August 30th, 1951. And it, it features Sam Pierce as Cummings. And oh, let me see. It's also got Nan Boardman as the girl, Ben Wright as the detective, Joseph Kearns as the devil, Jeff Corey, Mary Ship, Wally Mayers, the desk clerk, Lou Krugman. So there's a few names we know there. I was not familiar with Sam Pierce, and he's really the star, and he's very good. And I looked him up, and he'd been around Hollywood since the 30s, had part in a number of films, but most of the roles he played in films were uncredited. So they were very small roles. And then in, he did a, quite a bit of radio in the early 50s, mostly on suspense. He had like 20 episodes of suspense that he was credited with, one or two of Escape, uh, CBS Mystery Theater, and one or two other shows. So he just, you know, he didn't do the hundreds of thousands of shows like some of the other Hollywood staple actors did. But uh, anyway, he's very good in this, Sam Pierce. So here we go. This is from August the 30th, 1951, The Man Who Stole the Bible on Escape. Finding life rather dull, dreaming again of exotic places, wishing you were somewhere else, we offer you Escape. Escape. 
escape with us now to New Orleans during Mardi Gras, behind the gaiety of which lies a nightmare world of terror and death, as John and Gwen Bagney tell it in The Man Who Stole the Bible. I didn't mean to steal the Bible. That wasn't my intention. Well, I've never taken as much as a towel or an ashtray out of a hotel. And if I'd known the night of terror would lead me into, I'd never have taken it at all. Mardi Gras in New Orleans. A gay time. A lot of laughs if you're in on it. But me, I was stuck in a stuffy hotel room waiting for a call from the boss. And the sound of all those people out in the street having fun got on my nerves. Operator. 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 Come on, operator. Your order, please. This is Mr. Cummings, room 302. Whatever happened to that bellhop I sent for? Uh, would you speak louder? I can't hear you, sir. I said uh, this is... Just a minute. Operator. Operator! What was it you wanted? A bellhop. I want him to bring me something to read, anything. You said half an hour ago he was on his way up. Hasn't he answered your call yet, Mr. Cummings? No, he has not. Well, I'm sorry, sir. The hotel's so crowded. The Mardi Gras, you know. It's almost impossible to... Just a minute. Operator. Oh, nuts. I paced back and forth wishing the boss would call me so I could get out of the room I didn't dare leave even to go down and get a paper He's that kind of a guy expects you to be on tap all the time There was no radio in the room and nothing to read I went through all the drawers hoping somebody had left behind a magazine or a seed catalog, anything And then I found it The Bible The Gideon Bible. For years, I've seen them in hotel rooms, but I'd never paid any attention to them. Now I opened the book, 1 Samuel chapter 19. I lay down on the bed and started to read. The knock surprised me. I'd forgotten about the bellhop. I got up to go to the door, and I realized I had the Bible in my hand. It's a fine thing when a man feels embarrassed caught reading the Bible, but that's how I felt, embarrassed. I stuffed it under the pillow and went to the door. Well, you sure took your time to... Oh, I... sorry, I thought it was a bellhop. Who are you? House detective. Sorry to disturb you. Well, that's all right. Uh, what's the matter? Seems that the woman who had this room before you lost her pocketbook. She thinks she left it here. I'm sorry, there's no pocketbook here. Well, I'd better take a look. Well, I'd have seen it if it was here, but come on in if you want. Thanks. See, there's no pocketbook in here. Yeah, but she's sure she left it here. I'll have to go through everything. Now, look, there's nothing in there but my stuff. Do you have to... Oh, well, what's the matter? Don't you want me to look for it? Well, no, it isn't that. I just don't like people going through my things, that's all. Look, she had some money in it. Now, you wouldn't want me to say you refused to let me look around for it, would you? Oh, no, 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 of course not. Go ahead. But I've been through all those drawers already. Well, I just took another look. 
Doesn't seem likely that the maids would have overlooked it, but once in a while, something gets left in a drawer. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. But there's nothing in there. No, I guess you're right. That's amazing, the things people leave behind in hotels. Yeah, guess it is. Yeah. Nobody else been in here, have they? No, nobody. Can't even get a bellhop in here. You been out of the room? No. And look, I'm not responsible for anything that was left here. No, of course not. Well, I'm, I'm sorry to have no, bothered no, you. That's all right. Oh, say, uh, tell that bellhop to get up here, will you? Yeah, I'll tell him. Good night. He was a strange guy, but I suppose all house dicks are. I don't know. I never had anything to do with one before this. I lay down again and went back to reading the Bible. Once I got used to the old-fashioned language, I found it pretty interesting. The story of David, anyway. A guy being chased by everybody, not knowing who his enemies were, every minute expecting to get killed. I was down to the part where David's wife puts a dummy in his bed as a decoy to save his life when I was interrupted again. This time, I automatically stuck the Bible into the pillow and went to the door. Hello. Well, hello. I'm having the most awful time. I've tried and tried, but it just won't work. And the room's so stuffy. How's that? The window in my room, it won't open. Would you open it for me? Oh, sure, sure. Just show me. Which uh, room is it? Right next to yours, just around this corner. Room 300. I have the same trouble on buses. The windows never open. It drives me mad. You can see how stuffy the room is. Uh, this window? Mm-hmm. Well, isn't that odd? It opened for you. Yeah, yeah, it did. Easy, too. Yeah, so does this one. I can't understand it. You're, uh, sure you try. You don't think I'd come to your door and ask you to come over here if I didn't need something, do you? It's been done. <laughs> I won't argue with that. But now that you're here, would you like to have a drink? For your trouble, no, I mean. No, no, I, I don't think you so. You can watch the parade much better here than on your side of the building. No, no, I can't. Listen. What's the matter? Oh, I'm sorry, I gotta go. That's my phone. Wait, don't go. You can have the call transferred here. But it's silly to go all the way back... Hello, Cummings. Oh, yes, sir. Yeah, I've been waiting for your call. Now, look, I covered the whole territory down here. Things look pretty healthy. You see, the main difficulty has been... I stared at my briefcase. I'd left it on the dresser. Now it was on the bed, and everything had been pulled out of it. The closet door was ajar. The drawers in the bureau were open. My Gladstone apparently hadn't been touched, but everything else had. I heard the boss talking trends and business conditions, but my mind was on a girl who wanted a window open, a window that wasn't stuck, while somebody searched my room. Finally, he finished talking, and I hung up. There was no reason now for me to stay in the room. I gathered up my stuff, and I took the Bible from under the pillow. Funny, I'd gotten interested in it. I wanted to go on reading it. So I stuck it in my top coat and walked out of the room. On my way to the elevator, I... Got a sudden impulse. I stopped in front of room 300 and knocked. Oh, excuse me, where... Nobody here now, mister. The lady checked out. Well, that's impossible. I was just here. I don't know anything about that, but she checked out a couple of minutes ago. I gotta clean it up after her right now. I'm gonna be glad when Mardi Gras is over. Everybody goes crazy. Hotel goes crazy. 
people check in, check out, and steal everything that ain't tied down. Steal? I said steal. Ashtrays, bath towels, soap. Wouldn't be surprised if they take the beds next. The Bible in my pocket suddenly felt like a pound of uranium. I wondered if the cleaning woman could read the guilt on my face. But she put her wastebasket down in the hall and went back in to clean the room. For a second, I considered taking the Bible back to room 302. And maybe I would have if it hadn't been for the discarded book jacket in the wastebasket. It was gaudy, red, and yellow. I grabbed it up, put it around the Bible. The title read, You Will Die Tonight. Front, front boy, show this gentleman to 506. Oh, checking out, Mr. Cummings? Right. And let me see, you were in room... Uh, 302. 302? Oh. What's the matter? Oh, Mr. Cummings, I've had so much trouble over that room. I was supposed to hold it for a lady, but you can't keep rooms vacant during Mardi Gras. I gave her the room next to yours, but she kicked like crazy to the manager. Next to me? Mm-hmm, Yeah. Room 300. She checked out just a few minutes ago. Well, I don't know what this is all about, but there's something peculiar going on in room 302. Peculiar? Yeah, I didn't mind the house detective coming in to look for the purse, but I didn't like having my stuff searched while I was out of the room. Searched? That's right. I said searched. Mr. Cummings, you say the house detective did this? Yeah, he said the woman who had the room before me left her purse. Oh, but that's impossible. Now, what do you mean? Well, well, a man had the room ahead of you. Yes, I'm positive of it. Just the moment I have the register right here. Um, yes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Mr. Gregory. Mm-hmm. Now, the house detective isn't on duty today, but when he comes in tomorrow... Not on duty? Well, then what was he doing in my room? Today, Mr. Uh, Cummings? Of course, today, tonight. A tall guy with black hair. Oh, there's some mistake. Our house detective is short, fat, and bald. And he hasn't been in the hotel all day. He's home sick. <laughs> had the makings of an interesting little intrigue. But I left the mystery of room 302 with the room clerk and went to the cigar stand. It was 8 o'clock. My train wouldn't leave until midnight. Hey, yes, sir, what'll it be? Cigarettes or cigars? Cigars, three coronas. No, 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 make it six. <laughs> Always like to sell cigars. Men don't smoke cigars like they used to. Cigarettes, that's the fashion today. But give me a good cigar every time. Well, somebody's having a good time. Oh, they all have a good time during the carnival. Say, I, I wonder where I could check my bag and briefcase for a little while. You going to see the parade? Well, I thought I would and mill around a little bit. I got a couple hours to kill. Well, I'll be glad to keep it for you. I'm on duty till midnight. Would you? Well, that's mighty nice of you. Oh, don't mind at all. Mardi Gras something to see. You shouldn't miss it. But you'll uh, have more fun if you're in a costume. The hotel's got a for rent, you oh, know. No, 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 thanks. I'll go as I am. my stuff under his counter, and I elbowed my way across the crowded lobby to the street door. Through the glass, my eyes met the eyes of another man, a tall man with black hair, the man who had said he was the house detective. I swung the hotel door open and had a few questions I wanted to ask that boy, but he was swallowed up in the crowd. And then a big hand clapped me on the shoulder, and a voice boomed in my ear. There you are, I whirled around and looked into the mask of a laughing, red-faced devil. Don't try to evade me, sinner. I've come to collect you with my nice, shiny pitchfork. But when the devil comes for you, your time is up. All I could see in the mask was a pair of eyes. They were green eyes, and they were laughing. 
and the devil threw his arm around my shoulder and urged me along the street. I balked a little. I hadn't had anything to drink, and the whole thing seemed kind of silly, but before I knew what happened, the clown grabbed my other arm. Let's take the sinner to the fiery burden. And the two of them, the devil and the clown, were propelling me down the street toward a parked car. Come along, sinner. Hey, now, wait a minute. Wait. Oh, the sinner's reluctant. Push him in, clown. Oh, no, no. Look, look, Get fellas. Get Hey, hey, you guys. Hey, let me out. Look, where are you going? All right, let's have it. Have what? The Bible. The Bible you took out of room 302. Bible? Hey, you're not drunk. Don't waste time on him. Frisk him. Look, I, I don't know who you are, he but... He hasn't got it on. What'd you do with it? Where is it? Well, I told you I haven't got it. That's just to let you know we're not playing. Come on, let's take it again. Where's the Bible? Look, I, I tell you, I haven't got it. I, I had it, but I, I guess I lost it. Lost it? Where'd you lose it? Oh, I, I don't know. Why, you... Don't do that, sinner. Just as easy for me to pull this trigger as to look at you. Now, look, I'm, I'm telling you the truth. I haven't got it anymore. All right, you haven't got it. But you'll tell me where it is, you understand, if I have to kill you to find out. What are you stopping here for? Well, a crowd. I can't get through. Come on, let's get moving. Get out of here. Well, what do you want me to do? Drive over? Look, fellas, a short cut. Go on, get out of here. A bunch of revelers, drunk and out for bear, opened the back door of the car and started climbing over us. Nothing would stop them from weaving through. They thought it was fun, pushing and shoving each other. One of them fell, sprawled across the devil's lap, and they began to pile up. And suddenly I knew this was escape. I climbed out of the car. I ran blindly away from them. I saw a cab at an intersection. I ran out, opened the door, and there he was, in the back seat, the phony house detective. I slammed the cab door and bolted across the street. There was a policeman on the corner directing traffic. I ran up to him. Hey, hey, where do you think you're going? He's trying to kill me. you got to help me. Kill you? Who's trying to kill you? The devil. He's after me. The devil, you say? Yeah, yeah, and the clown, too. Not Mickey Mouse? I mean it. I'm serious. Hey, you're drunker than you I look, son. I haven't had a drink, I tell you. They're trying to kill me. And why would they be doing that? Because they want the Bible. The Bible? Yeah. yeah. Look, you see, I stole the Bible, and here they come down. Who? The devil and the clown across the street. You've got to get me out of it. You've got to stop, and they'll kill me. Oh, now, sure. Now, take it easy, oh, uncle. Take it easy. there you are, sinner. Come on. What are you trying to do? Get us in trouble? In trouble? Sure. He's going to miss the party. It's all a trick. Don't listen to them. Yeah, this young fella claims you're trying to kill him. Me? Oh, no, not me. But if he doesn't get to that party pretty soon, his wife will kill him. I haven't got a wife. There isn't any party. They're lying, I tell you. <laughs> now, you'll be all be good boys. Now, move on. Go someplace else and settle your squabble. i got to keep this child Please, officer, please. What the policeman said. Come on, sinner. Officer. Now beat it. Now go on with I it. I demand to be arrested. I demand it. Go on, I said. Now go on. Officer, you're a no-good white trash fool. I'm a what? If it wasn't Mardi Gras, I'd run you in. Then you want to arrest me. Okay. But remember, I didn't want to do it. <clears throat> Why, that's a dirty Yankee trick striking an officer. All right, young fellow, that does it. You're under arrest. <laughs> I sat in the drunk tank in the New Orleans jail and tried to figure it out. Who were the devil and the clown and the phony house detective? Why was the Bible so important that they'd even kill me to get it? My bags were back at the cigar counter in the hotel. My train was scheduled to leave at midnight. But how was I going to get out of New Orleans? Already it was 10 o'clock, and as long as I stayed in jail, I'd be safe. But that didn't last long. I hadn't been there a half hour when a cop came for me and took me to the desk sergeant. New Orleans Police. 9 p.m. Yeah. 
Here's your personal belongings, Cummins. You're released. You can go now. Try to behave yourself. We're pretty busy tonight. Released? Yeah. You knew you were a looking guy? Culpepper decided not to press charges again. you. You knew what you could get for striking an officer? But aren't you going to hold me? Your fine's been paid. Now go on. Get on out of here. And keep out of trouble, will you? But I am in trouble. That's what I tried to tell the cop, but he wouldn't listen to me. I, I had to hit him. I, my fine? Somebody paid my yeah. fine? Yeah. Yeah, it's been paid. But who? Who paid it? I don't know who it was. He didn't give me no name. He just paid it. Was it a man in a devil's costume? Huh? Or a clown? Oh, now look. What did he look like? How do I know what he looked like? He was an ordinary-looking guy, tall, Cars big, and he had black hair. The house detective. Nine, the who? They'll kill me. I tell you, they'll kill me. I hadn't heard her come into the station, and she moved so quietly. She was a nun, and she was talking excitedly in French. I wasn't paying much attention to her. I was thinking instead of my own problem. The house detective had paid my fine. He wanted me out of jail. He wanted me loose on the street. Why? And the devil and the clown, are they with him? Were all of them waiting outside that door for me? Well, now, please, please, sister. Look, I, I wish I could help you. But I can't understand a word you're saying. Monsieur, les gens dans la route m'empêchent de trouver mon chemin. Ils me prennent pour un, un des participants. Oh, uh, English, can't you speak a little English, sister? Oh, pardon, monsieur. Un masquerade. Costume. The people think masquerade. No masquerade. Uh, look, I, uh, I think she's trying to say the people on the streets think she's wearing a masquerade costume. Merci, merci bien, monsieur. I am lose. You mean lost? Oui, monsieur, lost. I am expect at convent au Vieux Carré. Oh, the Vieux Carré, that's the French Quarter, eh? Huh? Exactement, oui. I try for taxi cab. The crowd, how you say, push me around. Pouvez-vous envoyer un de vos gendarmes? What? Gendarme. Oh, oh, well... She wants you to send the policeman to help her get to the convent. Oui, monsieur. Oh. Well, I'm, uh, I'm sorry, sister. I'd be glad to... But I ain't got anybody in right now. If you don't mind sticking around for a while, I'll be... Sticking around? Well, the sergeant, uh, the, the, the prefect, says he's sorry, and if you'll wait, there's no one available right now to help you. He... Wait a minute. The nun stood there, frightened and bewildered, out of place in the police station. But for me, it was a miraculous break. Sure, I could walk out of that police station with her. And if they were waiting outside, waiting to get me, I could walk right by them. They wouldn't dare touch me as long as I was with a nun. I could take her to the convent. Once there, I'd be safe. Je suis désolé, que puis-je faire? I'll take the sister to the convent, Sergeant. Well, it's okay with me if it's okay with her. Merci, monsieur. Merci mille fois. As she walked out of the police station, I took her arm. To help her, yes. But also to steady my own fear. Any minute, I expected to see one or all of them. The devil, the clown, the house detective. But they weren't in sight. There were people milling about on the street, but not the three I feared. And strangely, not finding them there frightened me more than ever. I found a cab and gave the driver the address of the convent. The nun and I didn't try to talk. I realized this whole thing was difficult for her, and I didn't feel like talking. Too much had happened to me for one night.
cab pulled up in front of an ancient building in the French Quarter. Crumbling cement and wrought ironwork. We got out and I walked with her to the big front door. The nun raised the knocker. And I knew I'd been had. You! What is wrong? Fingernails. Red, polished fingernails. You're not a nun. Where have you been? Hurry, boys, he's wise. Come on, you, inside. It was the devil and the clown. They yanked me into the house. And the girl. I stared at her. Back in the police station, I hadn't really looked at her face. Her black robes had spelled freedom to me. That's as far as I'd thought. But now I knew I'd seen her before. Only before, she'd worn a green dress and a scarlet mouth to match her fingernails. And her hair had been blonde and long. And she wanted a window open. A window that wasn't stuck. Ah, uh, you've given us a lot of trouble. I'm sorry, but We've I don't... have been very patient. Now we want the Bible. I told you before, I don't have it. You had it? I had it, yes, I had it. I took it. I, I don't know why I took it, but I lost it. Who sent you to get it? I'll handle him. All right, who are you working for, now, Poloni? Look, 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 there's some mistake. I'm a salesman. I sell washing machines. You're lying. Look, I tell Where's you... Where's the stuff? Has Poloni got it? What stuff? I don't know any Poloni. What are you slapping me around for? That won't get you any place. Oh, won't it? Oh. Let me talk to him. Look, if you're covering up for Poloni... Who's Poloni? I don't know any Poloni. Poloni wouldn't take a beating for you. I tell you, I... Whatever he's paying you, we'll pay you more. We'll pay him nothing. You'll hand over that Bible or tell us where the junk stashed or so help me, I'll kill him. Don't... So that's what it is. Dope. Yeah, Mr. Innocent. That's what it is. Dope. Heroin and cocaine, a hundred grand worth. Stop it. You kill him, we'll never find it. Listen to me. What's your name? Cummings. You work for Poloni, Cummings. Nobody but Poloni knows about that Bible. You came to hijack the stuff. Tell you, don't know Poloni. Stop lying. Poloni knew our carrier was hot. That he had to drop the stuff somewhere in New Orleans. You're wasting your time, baby. I'll make him talk. Are you going to talk? I do. Do you want the butt of this gun right across your face? You've got to believe me. I... He hit me with the gun. I tried to keep my eyes open. To hang on to consciousness. Across the room, I saw the door open. And in it stood a man with another gun. A big man with black hair. The phony house detective. Was his name Poloni? I didn't know how long I was out. When I came to, I was lying on a bed. My head was throbbing. My cheeks, my nose, every bone in my face seemed on fire. There was a cold cloth on my eyes. I tried to think. Why did I hurt so? Oh, yeah. The Bible. They wanted the Bible. But I didn't have it. That was a good thing. If I had it, they'd kill me. And then I smelled something. A strong cigar. It burned the inside of my nose. I rolled over to get away from it and opened my eyes. The devil and the clown were gone. So was the girl. I was alone with the phony house detective. All right. Let's not waste any more time. What did you do with the Bible? Where are the others? They've been taken care of. Look, you took the Bible that belongs in this room. Now, what did you do with it? This room? Yeah, room 302. What am I doing back in the hotel? You had no right to touch that Bible. Now, think. What did you do with it? Where is it? Oh, look, I, I told them. I, 
must have lost it. I don't know. I got it. Yeah? Hey, the gentleman who left his suitcases with me, Mr. Cummings. Suitcases? Come on in. Who are you? Hey, I run the cigar stand in the lobby. I saw you bring Mr. Cummings in. <laughs> if you don't mind my saying so, uh, quite tight. Yeah. I'm going off duty in a little while, and I thought he'd need his things. You see, he checked them with me. Well, thanks. Oh, uh, <laughs> I almost forgot. Here's his book. No, too. no, don't leave the book. Well, you forgot it on the no, counter. No, I, I don't want the book. You can have it. I'll take the book. No, no, don't give it to him. Why, what the... All right, thanks for your trouble. Oh, don't mention it. Hope he feels better tomorrow. Well, at last, the Bible. <laughs> you will die tonight. You know, that's a pretty clever stunt, covering the Bible with a whodunit jacket. Oh, look, Poloni, I, I don't know. I I swear I just took Poloni? it. Poloni? No, not Poloni. Oh, let's see. Third book, second chapter. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, chapter one, two. Yes, here's the address of the warehouse where the stuff is. I, I don't understand. If you're not Poloni, who are you? John Stang, United States Treasury Department, Narcotics Division. Gee, man. But I thought you... Look, you made my job very difficult tonight, Mr. Cummings. We traced the narcotics carrier all the way around the world to New Orleans, to room 302. But when we arrested him, he was clean. He didn't have the evidence. Room 302 was the link. The girl, Frenchie, was to take this room, and I would have followed her to where the evidence was stashed. It was as simple as that. But you stepped in and threw us all off. Oh, why didn't you tell me you were a government man when you came in tonight to look for the pocketbook? How did I know that you weren't a new member of the mob? Look, take my advice, Mr. Cummins. Quit stealing things out of hotels. Oh, look, I never stole a thing in my life before. This is the but first time... But there's one I... thing that I can't figure out. Why did you steal a Bible? <laughs> You're not going to believe this. But honest, I just wanted to finish the story. <laughs> You have just heard Escape, produced and directed by William N. Robeson. Tonight's original radio play, The Man Who Stole the Bible, was written by John and Gwen Bagney. Sam Pierce was heard as Cummings, Nan Boardman as the girl, Ben Wright as the house detective, Joseph Kearns as the devil, Jeff Corey as the clown, Mary Ship as the telephone oper operator and the maid, Wally Mayer as the desk clerk and police sergeant, Peter Leeds as the traffic policeman and the cigar stand clerk, and Lou Krugman as the voice. The special musical score was composed and conducted by Leith Stevens. From August the 30th, 1951, that was Escape. The name of that episode was The Man Who Stole the Bible. Pretty good. Pretty good, wasn't it? I think so, and uh, I thought the acting was superb. Do you like New Orleans? Have you been to New Orleans? New Orleans is a beautiful city. I, I will say this. To, to go along uh, where the, the uh, trolley car goes, the streetcar, by the university there, Tulane, it, uh, it is really beautiful. Some of the homes there. And it has that southern feel, the magnolias and so on. But I, I have no, <laughs> I have no uh, interest in the French Quarter. Nothing personal. I'm not trying to insult anybody. If you live on the French Quarter, I'm not trying to insult you. But I went there, I think, only once. I've been to New Orleans, I believe, more than once, a few times. But I only went to the French Quarter once. 
And I was there about 15 minutes, and I realized there was just nothing there for me, other than maybe a restaurant. And I can't even imagine being there at Mardi Gras. Believe it or not, St. Louis has the second largest Mardi Gras in the United States. And it's down in an area of town called Soulard, which was probably the original St. Louis going back to the, you know, late 1700s, early 1800s. And there's a lot of old brick buildings down there. And and they've been restored and gentrified, many of them, and a lot of restaurants. And it's sort of a, a popular area. Well, it's taken over during Mardi Gras time. And we have a good friend who for years had a home there. She had a small house, and it was just unbelievable what she would put up with at Mardi Gras time. If I could tell you some of the things she saw happening on her front lawn, I mean, you wouldn't even believe it. So you can just imagine, I don't know, you have all these drunken people walking around. You know, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to judge anybody, but boy, I just, there's nothing there for me. I don't know. Even when I was younger, I don't think I would have cared for that, but I don't mean to offend anybody that lives in New Orleans because the, the city itself is, is beautiful. We were going to take a cruise out of there once. We never did. And we may do that again because New Orleans is a fairly simple one day, a long one day drive from St. Louis, about 12, 13 hours. But you can get down there and that saves, if you're going to take a cruise, that saves a lot on airfare. All right, well, we'll have more Escape coming up in the weeks ahead. And if you're listening to us on the podcast, it's our intention soon to do a half an hour to an hour show every day. And we would feature a different uh, genre each day. So we might have a comedy on Tuesday and uh, a Western on Wednesday and a mystery on Monday. And one of the days I plan on having one of these type shows, one of these dramas like Suspense, Escape, The Whistler, Outer Limits, that sort of thing. So we look forward to it. But if you prefer the two-hour show, don't worry. What we'll do is compile a few of the best shows that we do during the week into a two-hour that we'll release every, uh, every week for those of you that uh, enjoy that format better. And this is radio's highly regarded Wally Ballou with another Man on the Street broadcast in our series of interviews with interesting people from all over this country of ours. I wonder if I could chat with you, sir, just a minute. I'd be more than delighted. It's a pleasure to be talking to a radio microphone. Well, you don't get a chance very often, that's for sure. What's your name, please? My name is Ward Smith. I'm from Ellisville, Massachusetts. Isn't that down on Cape Cod somewhere, Ellisville? Yes, just at the uh, the start of Cape Cod. That's beautiful country down that way. What do you do, sir? Well, I thought you might guess. I'm a cranberry grower, and I own uh, cranberry bogs. Is that so? I've always wanted to know a little bit uh, about the raising of cranberries. They're such well, beautiful things when you see them growing. Well, they uh, they grow in bogs, you know, Mr. Baloo. And, uh, you have to be very careful of frosts, don't you? That's you? right. You have to flood uh, flood the uh, bogs if you if uh, there's danger of frost. And then you have to harvest them when they're big and red and ripe and juicy and bitter as anything. You know, they're bitter. Yes. And then, of course, after you harvest them, you harvest them in the fall, I guess, don't you? Yes, late summer. After you do that, you uh, turn them over for processing. Do you process them yourself? What do you mean by that, Mr. Ballou? By that I mean, uh, do you have your own factory for uh, squeezing the juice out of them? Squeezing the juice out of cranberries? 
I never heard. Yes, to make uh, cranberry juice. Such as well, you no, find in your uh, cranberry juice cocktail, that sort of thing. Well, now you've triggered me a little. Uh, I've never thought of that. Well, I, uh, that would be a good thing to do with them. <laughs> well, I've been selling them in a basket like strawberries. Cranberry shortcake. And I, they, they really don't move that way. Well, of course, you could also sell them to people uh, who want to make jelly out of them. Cranberry jelly is very delicious. Jelly out of cranberry? Well, is there pectin in them or something? Well, I suppose there is, and you could put certain additives in them. And, uh... Cranberry sauce is delicious, with the whole cranberry in it. Well, well uh, what would that be, a dessert? Yeah, no, people serve this with things like turkey and uh, certain kinds of meat. Well, I've, uh... Well, uh... There are a great many uses for cranberries, sir, that I think uh, maybe you haven't stumbled upon as yet. Those guys Is there any the other... Thing? Could you use them in any other way? Uh, well, I can't Could think. you make, uh, like, glass with them? No, I don't hey, think you can make glass with them. But you, you can squeeze, and let me write this down. You can you squeeze have a pencil. Them. This one, yeah. Jelly, right? Make jelly out of them. Juice. Cranberry juice. I-C-E. What? I-C-E. I-C-E. I thought there was a J in juice. J-U-I-C-E. Oh, J-U-I-C-E. Cranberry sauce. Yeah. And uh, you could even make cranberry ice cream. It's delicious. Cranberry sherbet. Well, I don't know how to thank you. This is uh, quite all right. We're always happy to be of assistance to our. Thirty years, interviews. I've been selling them uh, the whole thing in a basket. <laughs> Never thought of it. Well, I'm glad we've opened up a new field for you, Mr. Smith, and uh, give our best to everybody back at uh, Cape Cod when you get home. Ellisville, right? I will. Well, I, there's only one other family there. Uh huh. Well, that's all the news that uh, we see from our vantage point here in the street. And so, for this Man of the Street interview, this is radio's Wally Blue, winner of seven news coverage awards, returning you to our studio. Oh, I love Bob and Ray. That was one of their most famous routines. That was Wally Blue interviewing the cranberry grower while a bank robbery takes place in the background. The award-winning newsman, Wally Ballou. Right after the Comedy Corner, we're going to listen to another famous Bob and Ray routine. Something familiar. Something peculiar. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Ah! Something appealing. Something appalling. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Nothing with kings. Nothing with crowns. Bring on the love. Liars and clowns ah! Situation No complications Nothing potentious or polite Ready tomorrow Well this week on the Comedy Corner We're going back to college Ivy College that is For an episode of the Halls of Ivy That was first broadcast on March the 10th Back in 1950 Boy, I love this show. This was just such a great show. Of course, it was done by Don Quinn. He produced it and wrote many of the episodes, and he had just come over from Fibber McGee and Molly. While I'm reading uh, from Leonard Malton's book tonight, I just thought I'd tell you what he had to say about uh, the Colemans and their show, The Halls of Ivy. 
He said uh, there were a number of bona fide movie stars who also made first-rate radio performers, and they lived double lives in Hollywood. Ronald Coleman, who possessed one of the great voices of the century, enjoyed radio immensely. It also happened that good film roles were becoming harder for him to find in the 1940s, and so radio filled a gap in his career. He was a frequent guest star on a number of shows and hosted the syndicated Favorite Story for Jerome Lawrence and Robert Lee. Then, he and his charming wife, Anita Hume, became recurring guests on The Jack Benny Show, playing themselves as Jack's exasperated neighbors. This quintessential British couple were more than willing to let their hair down on Benny's show, and they had the time of their lives in a series of scripts that brought out the very best from Benny's writing staff. Mr. and Mrs. Coleman starred in their own genteel comedy series, The Halls of Ivy, created by Don Quinn. It also enjoyed a brief television run in the early 1950s. Amazingly enough, this seemingly tailor-made series was not written with the Colemans in mind. It was originally cast with Gail Gordon and Edna Best, but NBC rejected Gordon because he was then co-starring on the newly popular CBS series Our Miss Brooks with Eve Arden. The Colemans were an afterthought, and I'm glad they were. I heard the pilot with Gail Gordon and Edna Best, and they were good. But Ronald Coleman and Benita Hume just brought a whole new spin on it that was so outstanding. And it's no secret that I'm particularly in love with Benita Hume. I just think her character is tremendous. And that's why I like this episode tonight so much, because it gives you some background in exactly uh, what she did in Great Britain when she was a great stage performer. And you get to meet her old stage partner, Artie Pinero. And so I think you're going to enjoy this one, hopefully, as much as I do. So here we go. We're going back to March the 10th, 1950, The Halls of Ivy. And this one is entitled Victoria's New Review. Ladies and gentlemen, the Joseph Schlitz Brewing Company of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, presents The Halls of Ivy, starring Mr. and Mrs. Ronald Coleman. again to Ivy. Ivy College, that is, in the town of Ivy, USA. It's a little past noon, and so far it's been an ordinary day. At the home of Ivy's president, Dr. William Todd Hunter Hall, and his wife, the former Victoria Cromwell of the English Theater, Dr. Hall is just entering the living room where he meets Penny, their maidservant, and says, Hello, Penny. Will you tell Mrs. Hall, please, that I'm ready to eat now? Mrs. All ain't in, sir. Oh. She got a message to please come quick to a rehearsal of the Junior Follies about two hours ago. Oh, yes, yes, the Junior Follies. She said I was to inform you as soon as you wasn't quite so busy with your book. Thank you, Penny. You've been busy with that book a long time, haven't you, sir? Yes, over three years. Cool, fancy that. Over three years on one book. If I may say so, sir, I read much faster than you do. Uh, Penny, I'm not... The uh... secret is, don't stop to form each word with your lips. 
yes, Penny, I... You'll find it's also a great help if you run your finger along the page under the lines as you go. <laughs> I'll practice, Penny, thank you. Quite welcome, sir. Any time at all. <clears throat> I'll answer the door, sir. Uh, yes, Penny, do, please. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Is Mrs. Hall in? No, sir, she's not. Ask them in, Penny. Come in, sir. A gentleman to see Mrs. Hall, sir. Oh, good afternoon. I am Dr. Hall. Is there anything I can do? Oh, thanks, Doctor, but uh, I don't think so. Oh, I hope I'm not disturbing you. I should have phoned from the air terminal, but I'm in a terrible rush. Uh, my name's Pinero. Won't you sit down, Mr. Pinero? Oh, thank you. I, uh, I know Vic has ever mentioned me to you. I'm an old friend. Broker into show business. Oh, yes, of course. You're Artie Pinero. <laughs> the same. Yes. Well, she's often told me about you and the act you used to do. Pinero and Crumwell, wasn't it? That's right. Pinero and Crumwell. Those two funny people. Yes. Is that clock right up there? Yes, sir. Right up there. How do you get down off an elephant? You don't get down off an elephant. You get down off a duck. <laughs> 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 oh, yes, yes, yes. I've often heard of the supposed difference between English and American humor, Mr. Pinero. Uh, the understatement of one and the exaggeration of the other. But uh, if you were quoting from Pinero and Cromwell, those two funny people... Oh, if you mean that a jam tart smack in the face is not very funny but gets laughed at by everybody, Doctor, I agree with you. <laughs> oh, keep it simple is what I tell everybody on my way to the bank. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Govic's husband, I take it, eh? Happily, I am. I was never sure. I've been in Australia till recently. Are you in the business? Yeah, the business of what? I mean, are you in show business too? Oh, no, no, no. I'm, uh, I'm the president here. Well, I have been out of touch. Whatever became of Truman? <laughs> <laughs> no, Mr. Pinero, you, uh, you don't understand. I am the, the president of this college, Ivy College. Oh, oh, yes, of course. And Mr. Truman, I believe, is quite well and still in the White House. <laughs> His lease is good through most of 1952. <laughs> well, it's not for me to criticize your customs. <clears throat> How's Vicky? You know, it's been a dog's age since I last saw her. Prettiest kid I ever knew and the nicest and the most talented. How is she? Oh, I think she's better than ever, Mr. Pinero. Although I must admit to a slight prejudice in her favor. Uh, and that great sense of timing for a comedy line. Yeah, her timing is, as always, admirable. And is she still, uh... Oh, I know I'm being inquisitive, but I've got a good reason for asking. Is she still, uh... Has she got, uh... Well, I mean, uh... Does she bulge? <laughs> um, only where bulging is, shall we say, architecturally desirable. <laughs> But there again, I am prejudiced, Mr. Pinero. Uh, may I ask the reason for this uh, research? Well, you see, <coughs> I have something most important to talk over with her. Well, I rather imagine it might be important to me too, Mr. Pinero. Oh, of course it would, but I, I don't know if you'd understand it the way Vicky would. Well, why not try me? Well, you see, Doctor... Once you've been mixed up in our business, you're never quite satisfied with anything else. You're never quite as happy as when you had grease paint on your face and were complaining about your lines. Yeah, do, do you think that applies to everyone? Oh, yes, I do, everyone. You feel then that Victoria might be unhappy here at Ivy? Oh, now, wait a minute, Doctor. I didn't say she was unhappy. 
It's just that she can't help missing the theater. Any more than you can help missing this library full of books. I'm not at all sure that I agree with you, but, but I do understand your point. Every profession has a magnetism for, the, for its most competent practitioners, which is almost irresistible. But, but why this sudden concern for Victoria's happiness? Oh, forgive me, Doctor, but I, I talk better when I walk around. Well, this is why. I need her. I need her badly. Well, in the question of need, Mr. Panero, no one needs her as badly as I do, uh, with, if you'll pardon me, a certain priority. I know, I know. But this is show business. Now, I produced a musical review down in Australia, 1946. That's still running to packed houses. I wonder if the quiet of the campus has been deadly for her. My show is called Sydney's Harbour. It was such a hit down there that I brought a company to England last year, and it's still running there. I wonder if all the happiness she's given me has left her with none of her own. Now, my point is, Doctor, next month I'm opening Sydney's Harbour in New York. I've been an idiot, so content with my own luck that I... And I would like Vicky to play the lead. Well, did you hear me, Dr. Hall? Huh? I would like Vicky to play the lead. The lead, yes, yes, of course. The, or the lead, naturally. Uh, Mr. Pinero. Yes? Would you mind giving me a few hours on this? I'd like to think about it quite seriously. And then, may I phone you? I know that Victoria will be most anxious to see you. Why, certainly, only I, I don't have too long. Oh, could I drop around again about, say, six? Six, Mr. Pinero. And uh, thank you. Thank me? Whatever for, Dr. Hall? For reminding me of something I had forgotten. Hello, my darling. How did it go? Oh, if there's ever a junior follies at all, I shall be amazed. <laughs> you should have been there this morning. Sets falling down and fuses blowing all over the place. Orchestrations missing, actors going up on their lines. The director tearing his hair and screaming. <laughs> Everyone hysterical with week before opening jitters. <laughs> oh, it was heavenly. Uh, well, it sounds... It sounds quite hellish to me. Uh, begging your pardon. <laughs> You've never been in show business. It was meat and drink to me. Just what the doctor ordered. Vicky, do you find yourself missing the theatre terribly? I mean, do you ever have any regrets? Regrets? Of course not, Toddy. What kind of talk's that? Well, after all, you were at the height of your career when I met you. And the life we lead here, well, it's... So different from the life you've had. Toddy, but... this is the height of my career right now. Every moment of it. I think you sacrificed a great deal. Would you think that you sacrificed what might have been a great political career by marrying an actress? Oh, my dear. Well, you I... remember what that congressman told you? That you might have been a presidential log? Uh, the phrase, my dear, is timber, not log. <laughs> Although in some cases, log is the more descriptive term. Um, particularly when you realize that a log is difficult to handle, has a great affinity for a stump, and is most useful when dead. <laughs> <laughs> but, oh, dear, dear, I'm digressing. No, Vicky, of course I don't regret it. Well, then, there you are. We might each have been something else if we never married. But we did. And we're happy, and that's the essential thing. And you don't ever wish you were... Back. Oh, Toddy, darling, grease, paint, and fiddles tuning up in the pit will always make my nostrils quiver and my ears twitch. That's why I love coaching these college shows. 
just a little harmless smoke that keeps the old fire horse happy. Fire horse, indeed, please. You are speaking of the woman I love. <laughs> but seriously, Vicky, and the women's magazines notwithstanding, marriage is not really a career. In its original meaning, the word career meant a gallop, a gamble, a frisk. Marriage is not a gallop. It's a pleasant amble. It's also a serious partnership and a serious business, life. It can coexist with a career only with the most scrupulous balance of interests. Hey, what are you trying to tell me? Uh, Mr. Pinero is in town. No. Artie? Yes. Where? Whatever is he doing here? Where is he? At the inn. He'll be back here about six. Oh, how wonderful. I'll call him right this minute. I told him you were most anxious to see him. Oh, I am. I can't wait. I... Oh, you told him? Yeah, yes, he was here. Toddy? Yes, my dear? Does he want me to go back to the theater? Uh, suppose you talk to him. Marriage, my darling, is not a career. William, are you trying to get rid of me? Yeah, now, now, Vicky, is it, is it? Are you sending me back to the grease paint and footlights? Yeah, now, now, Vicky, I Have you decided that an actress's place is on the stage and never to darken your doors no more? No, 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 my darling, you, you oh, must Oh, I listen. out in the snow with my shawl and my baby. Darling, <laughs> 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 I have tried to see both sides of the question. Well, I've made my decision. You have? Yes. I'm going. You are? Certainly. With this deafening public clamor in my ears, how can I refuse the call of duty? I'm going. Going? I'm going to phone Artie. He's convinced you that I should go back to the theater. Now he's going to try and convince me. And let me tell you, what's that peculiar look in your eye? Just speculation, my darling. I think I shall meet Mr. Pinero on the front steps with a loaded pistol. I have just invented a new crime, Pinero side. <laughs> <laughs> and in court, I can say that everything suddenly went black. And believe me, Vicky, I can think of nothing blacker than the prospect of losing you to a jar of makeup. In the halls of Ivy, we find Dr. Hall talking to his wife, who's just had a fine offer to return to the theater. Vicky. Yes, dear? You know, quite sincerely, I don't want to stand in the way if you decide to take a sabbatical of your own, if you do think you'd like to get back in harness, as it were. I know how one can become infatuated with one's own profession, even mine, prosaic as it may seem in comparison to footlights and first nights. There are times when I positively thrill to the smell of old books. <laughs> I, I remember we were joking about it once, about inventing a perfume for the wives of faculty members. We were going to call it Essence of Worm-Eaten Volumes. <laughs> you might even call it Eau de Voltaire. Oh, very good, very good. <laughs> um, but as for your absence for a few weeks disrupting my life... Well, I, I shall miss you, of course, but uh, I can manage. Oh, you can, you can. Well, I, I, I mean, after all, I'm not a stereotyped, absent-minded professor. No, I know. You're probably the most present-minded professor there is. Well, thank you, my dear. So... Toddy, now look. 
I had a wonderful life in the theater. But I have a wonderful life with you here. And I never want anything to change that. Well, nothing ever will, Victoria, as far as I'm concerned. I can only repeat a phrase Mark Twain placed in the mouth of Adam about Eve. Wherever she is, there is Eden. Excuse me, sir. A young lady's calling. A Miss Keating. Keating? Oh, it's um, Sally Keating, sure, in Penny. Yes, Mum. Sally Keating, that's a familiar name. Yes, she's the lead in the Junior Follies. Oh, I don't yes. know exactly what... The... Oh, come, on, come on in, Sally. William, you've met Sally Keating, I'm sure. Oh, yes, indeed. Please sit down, Miss Keating. I understand you're the leading lady in the Junior Follies. Good heavens, what did I say? Sally. Now, Sally, what is it? Sally, now tell me. He threw me out of the show. Squiffy threw me out of the show. Oh, no. Uh, Squiffy? Well, it is. It's Dick Lester, class of 51. He's the director. Give me your handkerchief, William. Now stop it, Sally. Tell me what happened. Squiffy was choking Larry. And... Choking Larry? What's that? You mean throttling him? Larry threw his baton at Squiffy first because some of the orchestrations were on fire. On fire? On fire? Did Squiffy set a match to them? No, there was a short circuit in the pit before we could put it on. It was really the fall of Bobo. <laughs> What's a Bobo? <laughs> She's a who, not a what. It's Bobo Cleary. She's the head electrician. Oh. Now, now, Sally, stop it now. Now, stop it at once. I'm sure you're not really out of the show. I am. And I don't care. I don't want to be in it. I hate the part. I never wanted it in the first place. The songs are dreadful. And the lines that gave don't leave me standing there with egg on my face opening night. And I would appear in a production with any of them for all the money in the world. I hate them. <laughs> is, is this what you meant week before opening jitters? That's it. <laughs> oh, dear. Is it always like this? Of course not. This is serene compared to the general run of things. Now, Sally, stop that and listen to me. You're behaving like a child. It's a very good and funny show, and the songs are some of the best I've ever heard. And you'll be fine opening night. You know it as well as I do. Now, I want you to run along home and douse your face with cold water. And then I'll meet you in the auditorium in an hour. Well, all right, Mrs. Hall. But I, I'm scared to death about opening night. Well, good for you. You should be. I always was, too. It, it proves we have emotions. What good is an actress without emotions? Gee, that's right, isn't it? Yeah. Well, keep telling me that, will you, Mrs. Hall? I'll see you in the auditorium. Bye, Dr. Hall. Uh, good Goodbye, Miss Keating. <laughs> Poor, happy child. All upset and enjoying every heart-throbbing dramatic moment of it. Enjoying it? You really mean that? <laughs> She's enjoying every tear that runs down that pretty face. Yes, I suppose that's right. I've often thought that young people were purposely designed to be intensely emotional, out of all proportion to the moment at hand. Then, in later life, when they meet real problems, their feelings have been tempered to withstand the sharp edge of disaster. Mm. You must have found that out from observation, Toddy, not experience. I can't imagine you being very upset emotionally. Oh, my, my equilibrium was fairly good, Vicky, until I met you. You mean I tipped you over? Well, as a matter of strict uh, historical fact, my darling, the full impact of my being uh, tipped over struck me about the third night we had dinner together in that dim-lit little restaurant in Soho. Oh, yeah, I remember. It's a little French place. Or Armenian, or Greek, or all yes. of them combined, I think. Yes. I had a conviction as I sat there and 
and saw the candlelight experimenting with your eyelashes, that this was a moment to remember. William, dear, for a visiting American, you do find the most delightful places to take me. Uh, thank you, Victoria, but most of them are rather ordinary places which become delightful by reason of your arrival. Oh, but this little restaurant, I never saw it before or even heard of it. Oh, my, my ingenuity has an economic basis. Mm. This place looked quiet, clean, and inexpensive. <sighs> You know, I've been prowling around this district quite a bit. Yes, Soho. It is interesting, isn't it? Intensely, the very name. Soho. A fox hunting term, you know. Was it really? Yes, this, this was originally fox hunting country. And Soho was the huntsman's cry to call off the hounds. And later on, when the Edict of Nantes was revoked, this was the refuge of thousands of French Huguenots and others escaping from the French Revolution. Thus, through the centuries, Soho has become London's foreign colony. Thank you. That's all right, darling. The, the bus leaves the Marble Arch at two o'clock. Oh, I should be very happy to be on it. But how on earth did you know all this? I've been here all my life and I never knew these things. Oh, it's nothing. Strangers always know more about a country than the natives. When we get to America... We, we... What did I say? You said, when we get to America, we, you said... I heard you. Distinctly. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I, I had no right to presume that... I, I mean... Oh, forgive me. No. <laughs> you must... My thoughts, my hopes ran away with my tongue. Sitting here, watching your face... And, and I don't think I shall ever want to eat another meal except by candlelight. Victoria. Yes, dear? I think I must be a little mad to, to think as I've been thinking... Here am I, an American professor on his sabbatical with neither fortune nor fame in his pocket, having the unutterable presumption to hope that a reigning star of the London theater would... Would what? Would... Would, would you care for more coffee? <laughs> no, thank you, William. Oh, nothing more to... Oh, Vicky. Vicky, darling, you haven't eaten a thing. Look at your plate. Well, look at your own. But what, what? Didn't you like the dinner? Did I choose a bad restaurant? William, dear, how could either of us possibly eat? You've been holding my hand ever since we sat down. I have? Oh, good heavens. Oh, Victoria, I, I, I am sorry. No, no, I'm not. I'm going to do it again on every possible occasion. Do what, sir? Hold your hand like this. Well, thank you, sir. Very kind of you, sir. But don't you think that... William, it's Penny. You're holding Penny's hand. Of course I am. William and Penny, the two happiest people in the... Room. William and Penny! What, what am I... Oh, what am I... Penny, let go my hand! Yes, sir. Gladly, sir. You're pinching me ring into me fingers, sir. <laughs> I beg your pardon. I... I thought uh, I was... What was it um, you wanted, Penny? Mr. Pinero is here. Uh, Pinero? Oh, oh, yes. Show him in, Penny. Yes, sir. Right away, sir. Off again on one of your little excursions, Toddy? <laughs> yes, I, I guess I was. Was I with you this time? <laughs> oh, you're always with me, my darling. My excursions, as you call them, always call for two tickets, and I always... Mr. Pinero, sir. Artie! Vicky, my duck! <laughs> Won't you sit down, Mr. Pinero? Sure, I was trouble, those two funny people. <laughs> I, I'm so glad to see you, I could cry. Now try this chair over here, Mr. Pinero. Oh, thank you, Doctor. Well, you're looking great, Vicky. Oh. Why, you haven't changed the hair, so help me. 
Oh, what you do to them in Sydney's harbour is nobody's business. <laughs> I've told her part of your plan. You're absolutely made for the part, Vic. Why, you'll be the toast of the town. Yes, Artie, my husband told me what you said about putting your show on in New York. But I wasn't able to paint quite such a colourful picture as he did. That's very simple. I need you, pet. Thought it all over a million times, and you're the one, the absolute one. It seems, Vicky, that you are the... Uh, one, wherever you go. Now, name your own terms. Why, this will be the biggest thing that ever hit Broadway. Now, what about it, Vicky? I'm afraid, Artie. It's too late. It, it sounds absolutely lovely. But I'm just too happy here. Uh, Dr. Hall, I appeal to you. You have the understanding of a professional. Oh, you know how I feel about this, Victoria? <coughs> I'll miss you terribly. But if you feel the slightest desire to go back... William. Uh, what, my dear? Nothing on this earth could persuade me to leave you. You see, Artie... No, no. It... Don't go on, Vicky. I know the answer. Hmm. The way you two look at each other tells me more than words. Well, it was worth trying. Oh, yes, Mr. Panero, well worth it. Broadway's losses, Ivy's good fortune, and mine. I'm, I'm sorry, Artie. You were sweet to remember me. Oh, forget it, Vicky. Just thought it would be nice to get together again. Panero and Cromwell. Those two funny people. <laughs> Tell me, do you know how to make a Venetian blind? Stick your finger in his eye. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye, Artie. Applause and exit, Artie Panero. God bless, Vicky. And good luck to you, Doctor. Thank you, thank you, um, Artie. And my sincere sympathy... You see, I too know what it means to have a top actress under exclusive contract and a solid hit with the prospect of a long, long run. Goodbye, Mr. Pinero. Goodbye. Goodbye. Uh, welcome home, Vicky. I've never been away, my darling. Ah, but it must have been tempting. Toddy. Hmm? Have you ever looked down Faculty Row at six o'clock in the evening? Often. Have you ever seen the trees change color while you were watching them? Mm, many times. Have you ever listened to the singing at night on Fraternity Lane? Oh, I've even added my own baritone from outside the windows. And have you ever looked at yourself in the mirror? No, 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 Victoria. <laughs> I like it here, Tolly. I love it. <laughs> Curious. I tasted it. Now I know why Schlitz is the beer that made Milwaukee famous. And uh, now here again are Mr. and Mrs. Ronald Coleman. Ladies and gentlemen, when disaster strikes, the Red Cross is there with emergency assistance. Even more important, the Red Cross stays on the scene to help rebuild and to provide medical care. Last year the Red Cross gave assistance to over 200,000 persons in 330 disaster operations. Your help is needed. The forearms of the Red Cross embrace the entire world. Forearmed is forewarned. Give more than before. Good night. Good night, everybody. That's 
surround us here today, and we will not forget, though we be far, far away. We'll be seeing you next week at this time at the Halls of Ivy, starring Mr. and Mrs. Ronald Coleman. The other players were Joseph Kearns, Janet Waldo, and Gloria Gordon. Tonight's script was written by Walter Brown Newman and Don Quinn. Our music was composed and conducted by Henry Russell. The Halls of Ivy was created by Don Quinn, directed by Nat Wolf, and presented by the Joseph Schlitz Brewing Company of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Ken Carpenter speaking. people over most of these NBC stations. That was the Halls of Ivy, and that one was first heard on March the 10th, 1950. Victoria's New Review. Wasn't that a good one? That show just has so much love and so much warmth and just feel good. It's a feel-good show. Sometimes it's funny. Sometimes it'll make you cry. Sometimes it makes a point. But it was always so clever and so well done. I would have loved to have met Don Quinn. And I would have loved to have met uh, Ronald Coleman and Victoria Hume. It uh, was just a, a unique era and a great show. And I just love it. Well, before we get out of the comedy mode, let's take one more spin with Bob and Ray. This is one of their famous, famous routines entitled The Interview with the Slow Talker. Uh, this is a surprise time for me because I haven't had an opportunity to meet and talk with our next guest. <laughs> Incidentally, this, uh, this chair here sat in Mary McGoon's dining room for years and years. I don't know if that has any special meaning to you, sir. No. But would you sit there now and, and tell us your name, please? Harlow. P. Whitcomb. And where are you from? From Glens Falls. New York. New York. And what do you do? I am the president. And recording... Secretary. <laughs> Secretary... Of... Of the S... T... O... A. What does that stand the for? Slow... Talkers... Of... 
We believe... And speaking slowly. In forming... Your words and thoughts. Our ideas... <laughs> and opinions... Clearly... Before... Speaking. We speak. We are here in New York City in the city of New York attending a convention our annual convention membership convention convention all of our members, all 200 members, and 50 members, seven members, are here Speaking talking slowly, slowly, so that you'll never be misunderstood, as opposed to the members of the F. T-O-A. T-O-A. O-A. A. The fast. Talkers of America. Talkers. Of America. Of America. America. Our credo. Is to speak slowly. Goes something like, like this. this. Would you lower the curtain, please? We give me a nervous wreck. that music means. Oh yeah. Means it's time for us to travel back in time to the Old West. The year is 1874. The place is Dodge City, Kansas. 
Together, we're walking up Front Street, shoulder to shoulder with Marshall Matt Dillon. Along the way, we're going to meet up with Doc and Kitty and Chester and the whole gang on Gunsmoke. This week, we're going back early in the Gunsmoke run to 1953, June the 20th to be exact. And this is a John Meston script, and it's a good one, but Meston was a master at titling his scripts. A lot of times his, uh, the titles were very clever, uh, very descriptive. Sometimes you had to know a bit of history to understand exactly what he was talking about. But this one has really got me perplexed. The name of the show tonight, or this episode, is Wind. And I don't know where he came up with that title. Now, I'm sure you could say something like, well, these folks blew in on the wind and blew out on the wind, but I don't buy it. (laughs) I think he had something very specific in mind, and if you know what it is, uh, please let me know because I don't. Send me an email at bob at boomerboulevard.com. I would sure like to know. Because this one was early in the run, you'll notice a couple things. The music sounds a little different. The introduction to the show was a little different. It changed the following year where they actually included uh, William Conrad. And also, the gunfire had not been mastered as it was uh, right about this time. You might recall from the story of Gunsmoke how I believe it was uh, Tom Kemper and Bill James, the the sound men, two of the sound men on Gunsmoke, went up into the Hollywood Hills to record gunshot sounds. They were actually in William Conrad's backyard up in Benedict Canyon or one of those canyons that had all this perfect echo. And they had told the police about it ahead of time so everybody knew what to expect. But they literally recorded gunshots for hours and got that authentic-sounding gunshot that we heard for many years on Gunsmoke. And I think, if I'm correct, and I just listened to this last night, I believe this episode was done before they had developed the really authentic-sounding gunshots. Maybe I'm wrong. We'll see. What else? Oh, this one features John Daner and... At the end, they say it's Virginia Gregg, and that surprised me. I would have sworn this was Virginia Christine in this uh, play tonight, but they said it was Virginia Gregg, so I can't argue with it, but it, it sure sounds like Virginia Christine to me. All right, here we go. From 1953, this is Gunsmoke and the episode entitled Wind. City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gun smoke, starring William Conrad story of the violence that moved west with young America. 
the story of a man who moved with it. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. boxes of 45. All right. And, uh, I'm a little short of rifle ammunition, too, Mr. Witherspoon. Well, let's see. You still use that 44 Henry, don't you, Marshal? Yeah, that's right. And how many? Oh, a couple of boxes will do. Ah, here we are. Thank you. All right, Chester. What about you? Any fresh tobacco come in, Mr. Witherspoon? Yes, sir. There. One caddy or spit of drowned tobacco. That's all. Uh, say, uh, could I owe you for this, Mr. Witherspoon? I've had just about the one unluckiest month I ever knew. You fellows will never learn, will you? How to charge you interest, that's what. Well, I, I won't take it if you'd rather it didn't. <laughs> Don't be a fool. Of course you'll take it. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Witherspoon. But you stay away from those gambling halls. You can lose more money than your money there, you know. Uh, you heard about the killing at the Texas Trail last night then, huh? I did. Where were you, Marshal? Well, I've been away, Mr. Witherspoon. I just got back this morning. Mm. Nobody told me. Then I take it the man who did the shooting has got clean away. Oh, it wasn't a murder, Mr. Witherspoon. I looked into it. He acted purely in self-defense. Ah. That's what all the witnesses said, Mr. Witherspoon. Just another case of men being ruined by good whiskey and bad women, that's all. Well, there was a girl mixed up in it, all right. Huh? Who, Chester? A new girl, Mr. Dillon. Calls herself Dolly Varden. She's caused nothing but trouble ever since she got here. Uh, what do you mean? I don't exactly know, sir. Something to do with the gambling, though. Oh. Uh, and then she'll cause more trouble. Uh... Chester, I think I'll drop by there. All right, sir. Uh, take my cartridges to the office, will you? Yes, sir. Be glad to, Mr. Jones. Uh, you had an unlucky month, too, Marshal? What? You ain't paid me. <laughs> I'm sorry. There you are. <laughs> oh, thank you, Marshal. Good day. Good day, Mr. Witherspoon. Mr. Witherspoon? John. Oh, hello, Marshal. Ah, hello, Matt. Kitty. Did you have a good trip? Ah, successful anyway. Never sit up. Yeah. Well, I guess you heard about the killing last night, huh? Yeah. Yeah, I did. Kitty, huh? who is this Dolly Varden? Oh, I don't know, Matt. She says she's from St. Louis, but she is the luckiest thing I ever saw. Oh? Mm-hmm. Does she gamble? No. No, she says that'd spoil it. She's just lucky for other people. How? 
Whoever she's with, he wins. It's real simple. Oh, and they cut her in to stand by them, is that it? Yeah. You never saw anything like it, Matt. She goes from man to man, whoever pays her the most. But they figure it's worth it, huh? Yeah, they sure do. Unless she's with a man, he, he just doesn't seem to win. So, naturally, in time, they offer her practically anything to stay with him. Yeah. Oh, she's made a lot of money here. Which game, Kitty? Farrell. Only Farrell. Mm-hmm. She says it wouldn't work with anything else. Does anyone walk out ahead of the game? No. No, not from what I've heard. Everybody's losing sooner or later. If they can't afford Dolly, they go on trying anyway. And the fight starts over one man offering her more money than another, is that it? Well, that's what happened last night. Who's running the Pharaoh game? Oh, that's Frank Paris. Oh, oh yeah. I, I don't remember him. Well, he came here a few days after Dolly did. That sounds like an old setup. Well, nobody's caught him cheating yet, Matt. And if he and Dolly know each other, they're pretty smart about it. I've never seen them together once. Mm-hmm. Uh, where is Dolly now, Kitty? Upstairs. You want to meet her? Yeah. Uh, I'll go get her. Thank you, Kitty. She was on her way down, Matt. Uh, Dolly, this is Marshal Dillon. Hello, Dolly. How do you do, Marshal? Well, sit down. Thank you. Well, I, I'll uh, see you later, Matt. Yeah, sure, kid. Tell me, Dolly, did you come here with Frank Paris? Why, no. I got here before he did. Uh, sure, but that's not what I meant. What did you mean, Marshal? I hear you've got a lot of money for making a man lucky. Is that against the law? Only when it leads to trouble and killing. I'm not responsible for what these men do. No, but I am. Then why don't you do something about it, Marshal? That's why I'm talking to you. Go ahead, then. Talk. Have you been this far west before, Dolly? No. Well, you see, men out here settle their differences a little faster than they do back east. Most of them don't spend much time in towns. But when they do come in, if there's anything or anybody that smells like trouble, it seems like they always find it. What's all that got to do with me? You're trouble, Dolly. Man got killed last night because of you. I don't think I like you, Marshal. <laughs> You'll like me less when I run you out of town. <laughs> oh, you couldn't. I'll leave Frank Paris up to the men. If he's caught cheating, they'll shoot him. But I don't want any more killing because of you. You understand? No, I don't understand. Why should you think it's that It's I... simple, darling. I don't believe in luck, that's all. If I did, I'd have been killed a long time ago. Mr. Dillon? Yeah. Now, I forgot to tell you. 
While you were over at the Texas Trail this afternoon, Doc was in looking for you. That was four or five hours ago, Chester. I guess it wasn't very important. No, sir, but I should have told you. Oh, uh, Matt. Oh, hello, Doc. I, I told him you were looking for him, Doc. Well, thank you, Chester. Thank you. What'd you want, Doc? Well, Matt, I've been thinking I got an idea. Yeah? That fellow that got shot last night, they buried him in his saddle blanket today. So? Well, that's no way for a man to be buried. Dodge ought to be ashamed of itself. This is a big town now. Well, how would you propose burying them, Doc? Why, in pine boxes, Matt. Any man deserves at least a pine box. Well, I agree. Well, that's my idea, Matt. I think we ought to form a sort of a committee and raise enough money to bury people properly here. Why, it's a disgrace this way. Well, now, Doc, I, I don't know. If we did that, everybody would want to come to Dodge to get shot. I got enough trouble as it is. Oh, I'm serious, Matt. <laughs> All right. All right. I'll contribute a dollar. Oh, now what's that? It sounds like somebody couldn't wait for one of Doc's pine boxes. Come on, Chester. Yes, yes. You might as well come too, Doc. Uh, sure, Matt. I'm coming. Stop all this, Matt. I am, Kitty. Where is he? Dead on the floor over there. Oh, well, uh, I'd better take a look at him. I meant where's the man who killed him? Oh, Jack Singer there. But it was self-defense, Matt. Anyone can tell you. Jack Singer? Yeah. He's not a killer. I know. Was it Dolly again? Yeah, same thing. Where is she? Oh, I see her. Excuse me, Kitty. Dolly? Don't bother me, Marshal. I didn't shoot him. I warned you once, Dolly. They're grown men. I'm not responsible for them. There's a stage leaving Dodge at noon tomorrow. Be on it. What? Are you... I'm sure you've got enough money for a ticket. And don't come back to Dodge. Ever. <laughs> sure, Marshal. Sure. Well, sir, it lacks 15 minutes until noon, Mr. Dillon. Yeah, and it lacks Dolly Varden, too, Chester. Oh, she'll be along. Women don't never get any place ahead of time. Only two passengers have showed up so far. Maybe you should have run Paris out of town, too. Well, I don't like to do that, just on suspicion. But I will as soon as somebody catches him cheating, if he lives through it. Mr. Dillon, maybe you try too hard to make the law look fair. Yeah, maybe. Now, anyway, here she comes. Mm-mm. She's not carrying any bags. No, she isn't. Coming this way. Yeah. Stay, Marshal. Goodbye, Dolly. Well, I didn't say goodbye. I said good day. What? I've thought it over, Marshal. I've decided not to leave after all. There's the stage, Dolly. Get on it. No. Get on it, Dolly. I said no. All right, if you... I'll have to... You're uh... what, Marshal? Now, get on the stage. Oh, it's no use yelling at me, Marshal. That's not going to do it. 
Oh? What is? Well, you'll just have to throw me on it. Throw you on it? Yes. Your friend here might help. Chester, isn't it? Uh, yes, ma'am. Chester Proudfoot. I I'm glad to know you, Miss Dolly. I mean... Oh, shut I mean, up, I Chester. Yes, sir. Well, Chester could take my arms. You could take my feet, Marshal. Of course, it might be a little awkward getting me into the coach, but I'm sure you could manage it somehow. Oh, my, no, Miss Dolly. We can't handle a woman that way. Oh, goodness, no. No? Oh, no. Oh, then you'll have to do it by yourself, Marshal. Throw me over your shoulder. Or maybe drag me. You're wasting time, Dolly. It won't be easy, though. Because, Marshal, I'll scream and I'll cry and scratch and bite and I'll kick. Oh, how I'll kick. I'll be a mess when you get me there and I'll have the whole town out watching you be a hero. You're serious, aren't you? Of course you could hit me. You could knock me out with your fist or your gun. I wouldn't scream so much then. Gosh, Mr. Dillon. Well, Marshal. I'm tempted to put you on that stage no matter how, Dolly. But maybe there's another way to handle you. The best way to handle me is to leave me alone. And have more men get killed? If they're fools enough, what difference does it make? I don't think I could explain that to you, darling. But anyway, you remember what I said. You're through and dodge. Come on, Chester. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Gosh, Mr. Dillon, how are you going to get rid of her? I'm going to start by ruining her game, Chester. But how? I'll show you. Right here at the Dodge House. Here? Yeah. Frank Paris stays here. Go find out what room he's in, will you? Yes, sir. Wake up, Lonzo. Oh, Chester. Why is Frank Paris in? Oh, room 10, Chester. Thank you. It's room 10, Mr. Dillon. All right. You know Paris lives here. Kitty? Oh. Ah, oh, here it is. Who is it? Oh. You're Marshal Dillon, aren't you? Yeah. I want to talk to you, Paris. Sure. Come in, Marshal. You too, uh, uh, Chester. Huh? That's right. Well, what can I do for you, Marshal? Paris, I told Dolly Varden to leave town on the noon stage today. Oh? She refused. I'd have had to force her physically to make her leave. Well, why are you telling me this, Marshal? Because I thought I'd leave you alone, Paris. And let whoever caught you take care of you. But I've changed my mind. Oh, I don't know what you're talking about, Marshal. Don't you? No. No, I don't. Then just remember this. If Dolly Varden comes anywhere near your table from now on, you stop the play till she leaves. Is that clear? Now, look here, Marshal. I've got nothing to do with that woman. If you can't handle her, you've got no right wrecking my game trying to. Why... 
I wouldn't have a player left if I started that. Paris, maybe I can't rough up a woman and run her out of town, but you're a man, and I won't even waste time arguing. You'll do as I say, or you'll leave. There's too much money in Dodge for me to leave, Marshal. It's the way I said, Paris. I won't even argue with you. Good day. Quite a meal tonight. <laughs> Quite a meal. Yeah. Sure was, Doc. I was nearly starved, too. Yeah. Haven't had a meal like that since we got snowed in at Fort Fletcher a few years back. What do you mean, Doc? Well, one night, four of us were down to a quart of dried peas and a bottle of vinegar. <laughs> but by heaven, it made a better meal than Delmonico's puts out. Oh, Doc, it wasn't that bad. <laughs> Doc likes southern cooking, Chester. And any man who works hard deserves good food. <laughs> I'll let Chester answer that, Doc. Uh, when you're through, Chester, I'll see you at the office. All right, sir, I'll be along directly. So long, Doc. Bye, Matt. Hello, Sally. Mind if I walk along with you for a minute? All right. What's on your mind? Marshal, I'm sorry I behaved the way I did this noon. What? I shouldn't have done that. Just that I was so desperate, that's all. Desperate? About what? I've got to tell you. And I want to. But I can't out here in the street. Somebody will come by and then I'll be embarrassed. Here, let's just get around the corner out of the light. Please. Please, Marshal. Go ahead. Now, what's this all about, darling? sort of hysterical this noon. You've got to forgive me. You've just got to. Now, don't <laughs> cry. Just tell me. I've been thinking about it ever since last night. I can't leave Dodge, Marshal. I don't have any place to go. Now, Dolly. Oh, don't make me go. Please. I promise I won't go near a gambling table again. I swear I won't. Well, it's up to you, darling. If you do that and don't cause any oh, trouble, right? Thank you, Marshal. Thank you. I promise. You'll see. Yeah, sure, I'll see. Please go now. I want to dry my eyes before I get out in the street again. Now stay away from Frank Paris, darling. Gun. All right, drop it. You mean you're going to shoot a woman, Marshal? I doubt it. Drop it. Oh, well, not. Oh. <laughs> Give it you. to me. There. 
Well, you're quite a girl, Dolly. I'll kill you yet. You're going to jail. Ha! Huh? You're too dangerous to be loose woman or no woman. Oh. Put me down! Uh, you wrote! Where's Frank Paris, Kitty? He moved his table. It's beyond the bar. There. Oh. And that's him with his back to us, huh? Yeah. What's the trouble, Matt? You're mad about something. I just threw Dolly in jail. Now it's Paris's turn. You stay out of this, Kitty. Hey, come on. That's your... What's going on here? What's all this... Oh... Oh, it's the marshal. You're all through, Paris. And don't try anything. What's the trouble now, Marshal? There's no woman near my table. And there won't be, not for a long time. Dolly Varden's in jail. What? She tried to shoot me a little while ago, and I threw her in jail. Oh, I see. Well, maybe she's better off there. She did cause a certain amount of trouble around here. She can't see it that way, Paris. She thinks it's all right to lock up a man, but not a woman. What's all this got to do with me, Marshal? You're going to jail, too. You can't arrest me. I'm not arresting you. There's no proof of anything against you. I got Dolly now on attempted murder, but nobody's caught you doing a thing. Come on, Paris, let's go. No. Oh, you just said it. You can't arrest me. You're going to jail, Paris. And tomorrow you're leaving Dodge. You're clever, but you're crooked. And Dolly's in it with you. That's all I need to know, proof or no proof. I should have stopped you the day I got back. I told you, Marshal, that there's too much money here. I don't want to leave. I'm not arguing with you. I just wanted everybody here to know about this. We were doing fine till you came back, Marshal. You're in the way now. Don't be a fool, Paris. I'll chance it. My hand. You got my hand. My hand. You're lucky I didn't kill you. Now you walk out that door. Doc will take care of you in jail. tickets, Mr. Dillon, all the way to St. Louis. Thanks, Chester. And here's your change, Mr. Paris. Give it to Dolly. Here, Miss Dolly. Thanks. You think I'd better count it, Chester? Oh, no, ma'am. I counted it. It's all there. <laughs> oh, I'm joking. I trust you. I'm not suspicious of everybody like the marshal here. Well, who wouldn't be suspicious? You both tried to kill him. Sure. But he trusts me now. Don't you, Marshal? I do. Well, you think I'm going to get on that train without making you throw me on it, don't you? No, I'm not sure. But I'll throw you on it if I have to. Yes, I know. 
You would now. I would. Why don't you shut up, Dolly? The marshal could still bring us to trial if he wanted to. I know. Tell me, Marshal, why didn't you? The judge is busy enough without my hauling in everybody who tries to shoot me. And besides, you've sort of had your wings clipped. How? Oh, Dolly, what's the use of lying to him anymore? He's talking about me. I may never be able to deal cards the way I used to with his hand. Right. It's the truth. But think about it, Dolly. There are quite a few people who manage to get along on an honest living. <laughs> I never knew how, but we're going to have to find out. Well, there it is. Bye, Marshal. Chester. Bye. Yeah, bye. Marshal. I don't think I hate you as much as I did. Good. Dolly! Coming! So long, Dolly. Gunsmoke, under the direction of Norman McDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Tonight's story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Featured in the cast were Virginia Gregg as Dolly, with John Daner as Paris, and James Griffith as Witherspoon. Harley Bear as Chester, Georgia Ellis as Kitty, and Howard McNair as Doc. Gunsmoke has been selected by the Armed Forces Radio Services to be heard by our troops overseas. Join us again next week as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal, fights to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in Gunsmoke. Lovely Dorothy McGuire, star of Broadway and Hollywood, will be heard on CBS Radio next Monday evening in a dramatic story entitled The Fall of Maggie Phillips. It's another in your Lux Summer Theater series, so be listening for it next Monday on most of these same stations. The Fall of Maggie Phillips, starring Dorothy McGuire. This is George Walsh speaking. Sunday night's Dick Powell is rough, tough Richard Diamond, private detective, on the CBS Radio Network. From June the 20th, 1956, that was Gunsmoke, and the name of that episode was Wind. Did you figure out why it was called Wind? Well, if, if, if you figure it out, let me know. Listen, I was in Malton's book, Leonard Malton's book about old-time radio, and uh, we were talking about uh, the transition, about the time television was taking over in popularity. And it was kind of interesting. It said that uh, during that time period, 
actors on both coasts, in fact, I think I read part of this earlier, actors on both coasts had to learn how to juggle radio and television schedules, and that wasn't always easy. CBS decided to tape the Gunsmoke radio show on Saturdays to avoid conflicts. The show's greatest success as one of radio's pioneering adult westerns attracted a series of sponsors, and before long there was talk around CBS that it was a shoe-in for a switchover to television. Well, it says, the stars of the radio series hoped that they would be considered for the TV version, and to help their cause, they rented western costumes and went and posed in character on the western street at Knott's Berry Farm for a series of stills taken by fellow actor and stock company regular Harry Bartell, as well as a CBS staff photographer. It was said that William Conrad even dieted in anticipation of the photo shoot. As you probably remember, William Conrad got very, very heavy. Uh, In fact, he had one show called Jake and the Fat Man. It says years later, Conrad denied that he ever wanted a part on the TV show, declaring, I don't look like Matt Dillon. He says, I got talked into making a test. Oh, it was pitiful. He says, I was so bad and I was scared to death. It was the only time in my life that I was really ever scared to death. I was afraid I was going to get it, which I didn't want. I really didn't. But I was committed to at least, for the sake of CBS, for them to look at me and say yes or no. But I was delighted when I didn't have to do it. (laughs) I wonder if that's true, or if he was just saving face. Probably in retrospect, he was glad, but I bet he was disappointed at the time. I know Parley Bear has told stories, both on the story of Gunsmoke tape and also at uh, Spurdvac meetings when he was still alive, about how they were pretty upset that they really were never seriously considered for those roles. All right, as always, we'll have another episode of Gunsmoke next time. That's going to kick things in the head for another week. We'll be back. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new show. This is Bob Bro. I'm so glad you stopped by. And I am so glad you met me. We're going to go out this week with a little Dean Martin. Welcome to my world Won't you come on in 
miracles again still happen now and then step into my heart and leave your cares behind welcome to my world built with you in mind knock and the door will open seek and you will find ask and you'll be given the key Welcome to my world. Welcome to my world. 